podcast one production. Hi, and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, conversations with fascinating people all centred around food. My name's Gary Megan, and I love everything there is to do about food, whether it's a barbecue, a pressure cooker, the slow cooker, the perfect roast chicken. Each episode, I speak to someone who's making a difference or doing something unexpected, but always delicious in the Australian food scene. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Alice Zaslavsky, who was on series four of MasterChef. And when you're making a show like MasterChef, you don't always get to know the contestants as well as you might like to. So I'm going to take this opportunity to talk to Alice and find out about her life before MasterChef, during and after the show, and what drives her when it comes to food, about her passion and her passion for education. Alice is absolutely dedicated to helping people better understand their food, better understand what it is to be healthy and think about food in a healthy way. She's also especially excited about teaching kids about food. Hope you enjoy. Your parents, both your parents came here? Both or? my parents. So they're both academics. Um, and really the um, Cold War had just ended. The Iron Curtain had what come down. Was this? this was 91. Okay. So um, it was basically between Israel, America and Australia. And for my parents, it was really, they were leaving because of us. They wanted us to have a better life. Okay. Um, what so, was going on at the time? Do you remember any oh of it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Georgia was in the throes of a lot of civil unrest. Three days after we left, they bombed the airstrip. Right. Um, and I... It's strange. I remember soldiers marching on the Who's streets, they? and we're talking. Um, that was Soviet civil war. It was Russia. Uh, it was Russia. So Russia was trying to Impressing retain control, its power, big time. Um, but I think there was also civil civil war as well. Um, the sides that wanted to stay with Russia mm. versus the ones that wanted to be independent, and it's going on still. We actually went back to Georgia a couple of years ago, and just seeing the dilapidation, the um, the countryside is so so beautiful, but there are holes in the buildings from where shells went through. And um, my background is not just Georgian, but Jewish as well. And my mum actually, my um, parents are both professors now, but mum took two years to get her PhD because they wouldn't give it to her because of her Jewish last name, right. you know, and they didn't want that for us. Yeah. Were you always, your family always from Georgia or had no. they resettled into Georgia and then now you're resettling again? Is We're vagabonds, absolutely. Yeah. So um, the pogroms in Russia and the Ukraine of the early 20th century meant that my family moved from the Ukraine and Russia and Lithuania, Latvia, to Georgia. And that's actually how my side survived the Holocaust mm. um, and then moved to Australia again. It's just, um, I think as a result of all of that, we have um, this resilience, I suppose, that we've built up where we can just upend. We left everything behind. My father is a prolific collector of things, stamps, books, records. They were the only things that he brought with him. All of our valuables were left there. And yeah. we were quite affluent, actually. My great, uh, my grandfather was a um, part of the Communist Party. And, um, he was an officer in the, in the army. And the other one was a um, factory, like the head of a factory. And okay. I found out that uh, after we left, the factory had told everybody that grandpa had died, you know, and they'd actually held like a, a memorial service for this man that had just moved to Australia. So yeah. it's so beyond our understanding here. We're so privileged yeah. to be here. Do you appreciate your, your mum and dad's move? 
Like, did you tell them? Did you go, amazing? Like, mum and dad? What's amazing is that they moved at in their mid-30s. You know, mum was 36. I'm 30, almost 32 now. To imagine coming to a place with young kids, not knowing the language, not knowing what they were going to do next. And they came here as skilled migrants. Um, dad soon got a job at Monash University. For mum, uh, again, she, she got a job at Monash. And what's interesting is that she, for their first staff party, she made a Georgian cheese pie, <laughs> khachapuri, and her boss, the dean, said to her that if you make this, you'll always have a job at Monash. And she's <laughs> now uh, the director of the knowledge management faculty and yeah. she still makes that khachapuri hey, that 25 years later. Sounds nice. I'm up for a slice if hey, I made it on the show, around. guess. Did you? I did. Was it, it as good as your mum though? That's I, the question. Oh, God, definitely not. Probably it not. landed me in the bottom three. So do you think, you, do you think you've inherited what? What have you inherited from your mum and dad? What traits or characteristics, say from your mum, what have you taken from her? Um, my mum is the most tenacious woman that I've ever met. She um, managed to do that PhD with a toddler on her lap. She is so loving of her family, of her friends. She's strong beyond measure. Um, my grandfather was... Um, my, my grandparents came here to visit from Israel, so they moved to Israel. Um, they came here to visit and Grandpa was hit by a car a couple of days before they were going back in front of Mum and was um, put in a wheelchair. He was um, essentially um, paraplegic, almost quadriplegic, and for 15 years my Mum with Grandma looked after him and um, within our, our home and she never let that be... Um, something that she never let herself be a victim and never allowed us to feel like that was something that was a disadvantage in our lives. I've, I've never felt disadvantaged. I've always felt grateful for everything that I have. And I think that that's because of all of the various traumas that, that we just experienced, yeah. but just took under our, un, in our stead. Yeah. It's yeah. part of that migrant uh, mindset Big time. of coming somewhere new and making the very most of it. Yeah. So did they, did they kind of push you along into the career that you had or into uni? Uh, I think being the youngest, so my brother's nine years older than me and he's always felt that weight of expectation, okay. but I've always been the wild child and right. you know, mum's always said- So you got away with murder. I got I away with a lot of things, yeah. guys, but mum's <laughs> always said that I've done all the things that she ever wanted to do. I've never sort of feared anything and I think that they just wanted me to do something that was um, purposeful. Okay. So teaching for me was my way of showing that, yeah, I'm going, I'm going along with what my migrant trajectory is. So you went to uni to study teaching or something different? No way. So at school, I, I did all the creative subjects. I loved the arts. I, if I could, I would have done dance, music, art, drama, everything. They let me do one and I did drama and um, I topped the state. Whereas maths methods, which they made me do, I got twenty four, right. <laughs> and I I'll needed did exceptionally well, like exceptionally well. Math but I, out of out of fifty, um, yeah. and I needed a twenty five to get into the course that they wanted me to do, uh, which was can you imagine me marketing management psychology? That's what they wanted me to do. Mm, I mean, hey, I, I, re I reckon you'd be good at it. I guess I'm kind honest. of doing those things. Yeah, you're you right, kind of are. Um, but it just I feel like that was the universe giving me a gift. And I basically said to my dad's the far more kind of academic rigor guy. And he said, you have to do something that is academic. And so I found the most academic creative course, which was creative arts at Melbourne, which no longer exists. It needed a 96 to get in. And I got 96.05. So in right. I went to that course and it was, it was 
profoundly creative. That we, we would do subjects where we'd just, just Suzuki walk for an hour. Well, Suzuki walk. It's like I the slowest, the slowest walking of your life. You're just lifting your foot for about a minute, and, and then the you're purpose of that the is it's about coming into your body, oh. which we have to do. That's part yeah. of our craft now. I so. do that when I'm eating croissant and drinking lattes. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's not Suzuki walking, but it's much on the same spiritual plane. I Megan think. sitting. It is, absolutely. <laughs> so what, with the intention of be doing what or becoming what? I had no idea. All I knew was that I was having a lot of fun. And this is, you know, my early 20s. I yeah. was just, it was just shits and giggles. And I got halfway through and I still didn't really know what I was going to do. I knew that I'd be creatively, artistically unemployed if I kept at this. And I was walking past the education faculty and so, but did that mean that maybe you were going to be an actor or you'd be on TV or that you would do theatre or you would what? What were you? I loved, you must have had some ideas. I did. Time. For me, I actually had a conversation with my best friend in the course and we decided that being front of camera was um, there wasn't enough control in that. And, you know, you were kind of dictated to, whereas if you were behind the camera or if you were doing some sort of criticism, then you could control the outcome and the content. Okay. So I thought that it would be something back of house. So yeah. um, even I was doing film and theatre um, criticism, so looking at film and TV theory, yeah. that sort of stuff, which you can imagine, like we did a whole course on reality TV. What's for, oh, wow. So tell me about that. I know. So you can imagine it was the things like talking about story arc and archetypes and um, construct and <laughs> can, you draw, can you draw any analogies to your experience on... 100%, absolutely. And, you know, I think that um, MasterChef came at a time when Australia and the world was very much coming into that idea of safety and family. Mm. MasterChef encapsulated that spirit. It, it caught that zeitgeist of um, what it meant to come home as a family and um, root for someone in a positive way. Before that, you know, there was Big Brother and, and that was all about hoping that through schadenfreude that somebody would fail. Here, you wanted people to win and you cried when they went home and there had been nothing like it. And I think that by the time that I my season came around, it's funny that I can have these observations now. I only really watched season one and then I didn't watch it again. And so I hadn't, I know a lot of people that go on the show are very tactical and they, they, they think well, strategy they and they try, they try and produce themselves yeah. and all those things. I think that was my biggest, um, my biggest gripe with myself looking back was that because I understood the story arcs and the, um, the, the construct of television, I knew what they were trying to do. The producers, the what story do you think producers. What trying to do? Well, any time that I had an interview where I was feeling flat, and you can imagine over six months of lockdown, there were times Everything. when ev it was every just emotion, every emotion. And if my interview seemed a bit flat, they'd say, "You don't sound excited enough. You don't, you know." And regardless of whether I gave them what sort of light or shade I gave them, watching back, they'd only give me light, and they'd only show me in these like happy moments. And so people meet me and they say, "Wow, you're so different to what you I imagined." Carried yourself so well in the yes, competition. Yeah, well, and I'm really grateful for that. That edit, hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because you might know that the three judges fight that all the time mm. because what we want is just the, the truth of it yes. to, to kind of service. What, what's going on? Are you in a bad mood or why are you feeling flat? What mm -hmm. are you missing? It's interesting. Yeah. And the show's changed a lot actually. I yep. think it's kind of loosened out. But you also can tell where the arcs are. And oh, of course I don't know how you – I don't know how you can – you know, sit sit with that sometimes. There would be frustrating moments for you as well. Uh, you know what it is for me is that I stay focused on what gives me pleasure, which is the people and the food. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what's going on around me, 
if I if I'm focused on that because that's ultimately what I love to do, mm. then I'm perfectly happy, and I don't fight it. Something you you have to it's hands behind head, feet up, float downstream, and you can handle it. It's a bit like Suzuki walking. Mm. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's just the slowest shuffle you can possibly imagine, but it's all about your um, you know, your inner peace. That's yeah. what it's about. So at uni, going in one direction, mm. studying one set of subjects, yep. you decide to change your mind. It wasn't even a mind change, it was a pivot. So I literally pivoted my feet, was walking past the education faculty and saw a sign saying that if you're studying arts or creative arts, if you tack on an education, Bachelor of Education, then you can take a year off your degree and you can go out there and have a job. And I thought, you know what, I would make a kick-ass drama teacher. That was my favourite teacher at school. Right. What's the worst that can happen? And as soon as I walked in front of a class on my first teaching round, I felt in my body. Mm. I felt at home and it was because I was on stage, you know, like I, as much as I didn't think that my career would be on stage because I didn't, I think I was afraid probably. I was afraid that I, I would fail. And so I just didn't allow myself to think that that could be a job for me. Mm. Um, as soon as I stood in front of those kids and that audience and started talking about, I wonder what it was. It would have been Shakespeare. I think that was my first round. So it was English and drama that I was teaching. And it was an English class and we were teaching Romeo and Juliet to year seven or year eight. And it was just heaven. I just loved it and love it still. Do you remember the kids? I can remember the kids. I can remember the kids on the rounds. I still um, sometimes catch them on social media. That's the wonder of the world now, especially the kids that I taught in my last few years. Um, I had a, a homeroom of girls for year seven and for year eight. And I went to their year 12 graduation not last year, the year before. Actually, no, it was last year. And um, it was like something out of a movie. I sat in the back row because I actually, I I had to leave my job um, as deputy head of, the youngest deputy head of, of faculty. And, um, you know, I was 26. I basically was given the choice on a Sunday night that if I'm not at work on Monday morning, I don't have a job. Mm. And that was the day, that Monday, um, where Matt Moran walked in with a salmon on his back. And said, <laughs> I remember that. Slam that salmon down and said, You either step forward and you cook or you step back and you mm. get a chance. And I thought, Well, I've just left my job. So what's the worst that can happen? Step forward, cook. So you're in the competition. Yep. And they basically said, Look, we can't do with it. Can't leave this job open anymore. It was one week into auditions. I It was the end of the year. I had finished all of my exam marking. I'd written all of my reports and I was told that I had three weeks um, and then we'll just. Take, play it by ear next year and a week in I sent an email saying thank you so much for your support I'm having a great time still not in the top 24 but you never know and they responded and said if um, it's all well and good that you're having fun but if you aren't here you mm. don't have a job and I just didn't respond I just didn't turn up and I certainly didn't tell my parents yeah that'd be <laughs> one that you'd keep quiet for a bit yeah and do you do you regret that decision in any way at all <laughs> youngest deputy head what do you think guys <laughs> I think um I think that I don't think I could ever have regretted that decision because it's there are times in your life where paths will diverge and challenges will present themselves and I've been armed with enough skills and I've seen enough situations where you take the path less travelled. You mm. do because otherwise you know what that outcome is going to be if you take sure. the other path. You can look ahead. You can see them. They're, I know it's they're safe. all in the yeah, staff room. Exactly. That's right. But I think that that's a decision that's made out of fear <clears throat> and I've never made decisions out of fear. Mm. So when you, when you came on the show, you 
obviously you're an educator. You, you said all you want to do is teach kids and you want to teach kids about um, healthy food. I remember you had this idea of having a bus <laughs> yep. with uh, big glasses on the front, mm -hmm. which I still think is a brilliant idea. Me just too. putting it out there. It's funny. I, I think back there was a pivotal point in the competition. We were at um, a hotel in Italy and I was rooming with Deb. You might remember mm -hmm. yep. um, Deb was the grey haired. For those listening in, you'll be yeah. like, oh, yeah, I remember Deb I with remember the short Deb, hair. Yeah. And, um, she the, cooked with fennel and lemon. Oh, and loved it. Good, yeah. good cook too. Great cook. I still, um, whenever I cook any sort of fruit, I always put vanilla and cinnamon and I think of Deb. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Nice way to remember it. Uh, absolutely. And the thing that um, we were having a conversation about our dreams after the show and she said to me, Alice, that bus, you know, it was mm. the food buzz with the, the glasses on the front and yeah. the bees on the sides. That bus is a vehicle, but it is just a vehicle. You don't have to think about a physical bus. It's yeah. just that idea of teaching kids. And that has always stayed with me. So after the show, I um, was approached to do a, a kids TV show called Kitchen Whiz, which is crazy because before the show, I watched it and thought I could host the shit out of this show. Here I am hosting it. Um, we did, you know, close to 200 episodes of that. And then um, Crunch Time came around, yep. which is another um, kind of, I don't know if your daughter watches Crunch Time, but it's pretty great, guys. It's like a uh, the living room, but for kids. Yeah. So um, lifestyle. My daughter's at that age where she consumes media as and when she wants. Correct. And on, on yeah. streams yeah. and downloads and and yeah. Insta stories. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah, I get it. I know exactly the kid. Um, but and I also had the opportunity to publish a, a kids cookbook as yeah. well. Alice's Food A to Z. I'm loving the shameless plugs. This is great. No, you just keep talking about but, it. But it's you know the the best thing about the book is that. It took me three years because I wanted it to be really good. I didn't just want to publish something, you know, and harness the power of MasterChef. I wanted yeah. it to be something that would stay. So it's a, a textbook for kids about food um, and it was given a notable book gong by the Children's Book Council. It's the first cookbook of its, you know, uh, uh, first cookbook to be given that that honour, which really kind of cut to my – gave me nachos. Yeah. Um, but I actually – and you don't know this, Gaz, so – Dave, I've, I've spoken with your producer and I thought I'd surprise you on the air, but um, late last year I was um, approached by um, an industry body, so Hort Innovation, who look after the growers of vegetables, fruit yep. and nuts in Australia, um, and they basically gave me the keys to the kingdom. They said, create a food education program wow. that's basically going to um, affect change, behaviour change in kids and create an attitudinal shift because I think that at the moment the problem with vegetables for kids is that the attitude is always negative. Yeah. You know, and and I think for me vegetables mean so much more than just what you put in your mouth. That they're about connecting with the ground. They're sure. about accepting new things. Yeah. About getting excited about nature and and that is to me the most exciting thing. So, so that's, that's fabulous. So that's a big proverbial that's my bus. bus isn't that's it? my it's bus. A big bus with glasses on. Big time. So what does that mean? What what, what can you do with this? Well, I, I think that. Some incredible work has been done over the, the last few years or um, many years in terms of educating kids and food. Um, obviously, Stephanie Alexander's done incredible yeah. stuff with Kitchen Gardens. Because this and, is one of the things that you talked a lot about on the show. Mm -hmm. And actually, a few of the contestants over the past years mm -hmm. have been involved. And that's, been, yep. that's putting gardens in schools and allowing yep. kids to, you know, to touch and feel and cook out of it. Yep. There was one at Murrumbina mm -hmm. Primary where Jenna went mm -hmm. to school. And they've got an amazing kitchen garden program. And I went in and did a couple of things with the kids. And just the joy, mm. like the pleasure, like it's just total fun. 
I never had anything like that when no, I was growing up. No, and I, I had that because I was fortunate enough to have a, a grandfather that loved yeah. to kitchen garden, but otherwise I wouldn't have had that. And I can just imagine that the kids coming through, you see it, the kids coming through those schools really have a, a massive advantage. But unfortunately, not every school can have a That's kitchen right. garden. And um, so what I'm doing um, essentially because it's what I know how to do, it's creating curriculum that's interdisciplinary. So actually offering teachers solutions to bring food education into English, into history, into geography, um, into PE, whatever subject, you know, into languages, because that's what I was doing. So because I had the budget for the humanities department, I created feasts for my kids. So we had right. for um, for medieval day, yeah. we had a suckling, an organic suckling pig on a spit, yeah. 600 bucks later. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we all dressed up in medieval fare and all the kids, each of them brought a dish. There was a lot of bread <laughs> and yeah. a lot of grapes, yeah. but they each brought a dish that reflected medieval times. So it was encouraging them to research and again, to connect because the thing about food is that everybody eats and it's such a great equalizer. Yeah. So, but only if you connect with it, like that suckling right. pig or dressing up. And so that integration into subjects. So mm -hmm. how will that work? For example, mm -hmm. for example. So um, what I'm going to do. So rather than reinventing the wheel, because as you say, that's a, a mammoth task. Oh, it's but huge. The best part is that there are people all over the world that are already undertaking programs that are fantastic. And what we have uh, the privilege of being in 2017 is that it's a global community. So I'm actually going to head out later this year and look at these programs and create a, a series of resources around those yeah. programs, bring them back to Australia, optimise them for Australian schools yeah. and offer teachers rather than trying to um, be didactic or be um, rigorous, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for, um, restrictive and yeah. prescriptive. Yeah. I'm just going to say, here's a bunch of resources. They're yeah. all free and teachers are time poor and they're resource poor. So have the resources. They're really easy. They're searchable. They're curriculum friendly. And all you have to do is integrate more food into your teaching. Yeah. And can you drill down on that a bit? Is there something that you've seen that you're following on social media or have you visited that you go, yeah, I'm going to pluck that and that's going to be part of the framework? Well, I've um, I've been looking at a lot of things online and a lot of gamification. So yeah. there are some really great games that are going on um, that that kind of integrate mathematics. So something like, for example, the um, Kitchen Panda. What's his name? There's a there's a basically a, a panda program. It's like a game that younger kids can play where they're taking um, little you know bowls of rice and bringing it over and counting the the rice bowls and various things yeah. and sort of um, so numeracy, yeah, teaching so it's, numeracy. Yeah, numeracy, through. it's relatable exactly. and it's fun. That, exactly, yeah. So Love it. Oh, and it's, it's only the beginning and I'm really fortunate. I've got a big, great team behind me so we're getting all of the data. At the moment we're in the knowledge phase so we're looking at what the attitudes at the moment are with teachers and students and yeah. um, and parents as well because ultimately there's a feedback loop between them and if I want to talk to kids and show them that vegetables are cool, if I approached a group of 10-year-olds and said, hey, guys, yeah. vegetables are cool. They're just going to go, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever, whatever, leave. But uh, but instead I'm starting with the teachers first, but it's a, it's a multi-phase program. Because I would imagine, I mean, I would imagine that this changes if you're a city kid or a country kid or you're a suburban mm -hmm. kid. You know, it's very different from growing up in the middle of Sydney, CBD, or, you know, inner suburbs yep. to growing up in Wagga Wagga. 
Totally. Right? Totally yeah. different. Eat mm-hmm. totally differently. Access to fresh food is different. And city is better, obviously. Uh, well, most of, the, most of the time, mm, in terms of accessibility. accessibility yep. Um, because the logistics in this country are a, a nightmare. And often yeah. you go into country regions, you go to a supermarket mm. and they've got some of the worst food and some of the most expensive food. Totally. And you would be absolutely staggered. Um, the research is showing that at the moment the average amount of vegetable intake that kids mm. have a day is 1.8. And between the ages of 2 and 12, that should be more like 4 to 5. Yeah. So um, on average, you know, there are less than 2% of kids that are actually getting that 4, four to 5 pieces of vegetation a day yeah. so what are um, eating instead i know the answer you know no tell us you know it's white food it's brown food um it's processed food and it's convenience food and i think that that's because um we're outsourcing our health and well-being and i think the most important thing about um you know going back to paleo and that conversation that we had on the show when we had that paleo conversation that was 2000 end of 2011 and 11 start of 2012 and you said to me that um, Australia wasn't ready for it. Mm. And I think that you were right. And I think that if I'd gone along that track of um, giving prescriptive dietary advice when I'm a teacher, not a nutritionist, that would have fallen flat. So I'm not trying to say this is healthy, this is unhealthy. All I'm trying to say is that food should give you joy yeah. and think about how this feels. And I know how I feel when I eat a when you're eating crunchy, good food. sweet yeah. capsicum compared to, you know, Sure. Uh, well, I was, you know, as you're talking, I mean, it's it's a it's a huge task because actually, what happens too is, as foodies, we tend to think everybody eats like we do, mm-hmm. and then you forget that most people don't actually eat a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables, and that and that the money that they're earning makes a big difference. How busy they are makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Mm-hmm. How many are in the family makes a big difference. And we can't. The worst thing we do is this, is that tut tut kind of. You know, you should be doing this oh, yeah. because of course they're sitting back going, yeah, you're not living my life That's right. and I don't have a choice. And a lot of the time they actually, they can't see any other mm-hmm. choices than, than what they've got or they just see it as being completely normal. So you, you're taking on a big thing. Yeah. But I think I'm, I'm yeah. so excited about it and I think that it's about meeting everybody halfway. Yeah. So wherever you are, you can always do a little bit more. It has to be a solution. What do you hope for with that program? What I hope for, um, first of all, as an output, I want to, I want people to see sparky kids. Mm. I want people to see kids that are engaged and happy and excited and excitable. Um, and I want them to make that connection then that these kids are that way because they're connected with each other, with their families, with their communities, and especially with the soil and with nature. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really exciting. Overall, I think that there is a disconnect in general. Um, obviously, social media plays a part. Screen time plays a part. Um, the, the fact that families now have a lot more um, commitments, so it means that mum and dad are probably away working, so kids don't have that one-on-one face time. And so I think that there's now a, a cultural disconnect and all of that can be resolved if we take a step back mm. and think about it from the perspective of something that we do and we make a choice to do. Yeah. At least three times a day. Well, also, in, I'm not going to chase this too much because it's quite a big kind of. You're opening a can of worms, but you know, even in my my friendship group, we've we've all got a load of super kids, you know, that are so bloody busy, right? They don't have time to be Suzuki walking. Do you know what I mean? Yes. They're they're doing tennis mm-hmm. and rowing and golf and any kind of little spark that they're they're even vaguely interested in something. Off we go again, and yep. they're doing footy and you know and karate. And, you know, I've got friends that have got children that do not have one minute mm-hmm. of the week spare, which is completely 
the opposite to my me yes. when I was growing up. We mm. had lots of time. Yep. Uh, riding our bikes and doing riding our bikes and pottering around and playing around and being left to our own devices and being engaged in things like food. I mean, my grandfather was a chef, so I was doing that. It's very different now. Mm. And I wish they could just slow down. I wish they could do less homework. I wish that they had the chance to learn how to row and play squash later on in life because there's plenty of time to do all that. Yes. Yeah. And you know what I mean? yeah, the problem is that these kids, they get to university and they, they're already burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it's fantastic that you're thinking this way. And I think, I hope that more parents start mm. thinking that way and that more kids start to also take responsibility for how they're feeling. Um, I think often they are, again, they turn themselves into robots and machines, mm. you know, well, I've, I have to be here at this time. And, you know, now I've got half an hour to check my Facebook and then I'm off wherever, yeah. or, you know, here's a Snapchat filter and um, they never actually take time to, to themselves. And I think meditation is really important, um, having some sort of mindfulness practice, whatever that is. So within that, whether it be yoga or… Um, You're back to my croissant and latte again. You see? No, I'm <laughs> yes, joking. No, it's no but it's, keep yes. going, please. Well, um, I think all of that just comes back to rather than eating on the run, mm. rather than um, grabbing a packet, it's about taking that time to prepare the food. For me, cooking is meditation. Yeah. It's very, very mindful. It's, yeah. you know, taking 10 minutes to saute those onions. Yeah. How do I know that? Because Gary Megan taught me in yeah, a masterclass. Yeah. It's a, but they also <laughs> say that a lot of the time when we're overeating, you know, if, I, th I remember watching somebody and they said, if, if I asked you if you wanted a slice of pie, you go, yeah, I'll have a slice of pie. Do you want a scoop of ice cream with that? Yeah, I'll have a scoop of ice cream. If I then offered you the whole tub of ice cream, you go, sure, and you'd eat it. But if you actually, if you made the pie mm. and you made the ice cream, you don't only have a slice and a scoop. But because you can just go and buy a tub, yep. you eat the whole lot. It's a really interesting thing. And I, we've always cooked in our house. Mm -hmm. Jenna's grown up in a house where everything's cooked. I mean, not so long ago, I cooked a veal saltamboca at her request. <laughs> How times have changed. Um, and I made wet polenta you know, with Parmesan and burn was that, you know, with lemon and everything. And I'm, and I'm quite proud of myself. And I put it up and I'm thinking no kids eating like this, you know, um, or no dads cooking their mm -hmm. child like this. And, and I'm very proud of that. And I put it down and she goes, dad. And I go, what? And she goes, why did you put the saltambaca on the polenta? Oh, I've yeah. bred a monster. I've reared a monster. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you've spoiled it. You should keep those two things separate. Now I can't enjoy it. And I just went, oh God, Look what have out. I done? <laughs> Next time so, she can make it. Coming up after the break, Alice tells us all about how you keep food fun for kids. I can't wait for this one. Even that was tough for me. I tried everything in my daughter's lunchbox and she still wouldn't eat it. So, Alice, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Stay with us. The most important, I assume, tell me if I'm wrong, one mm. of the most important things is educating children. Oh, yeah. What to eat, you know, or parents. If you could pass on a couple of little tips just here about what we could do, what we should do. Because it does get tut-tut at some point, doesn't mm. it? Where you go, okay, that's too many things. What what are the what are those things? What are what are the things that we need to change? Well, I remember when I was visiting schools on my book tour, there was one school that I went to, it was out um 
in Punchbowl in Sydney and um, I was talking about how great it is to make your own food. And this is very much a tut-tut story. Um, it was, I said, you know, making your own sauces is so much fun. You make mm. your own tomato sauce, you can make your own mayonnaise, amazing. And I asked everybody to tell me their favourite sauce and there was a, a kid sort of in the, the back row with this big smile on his face and I thought this is going to be great. And he, and, he, and he put his hand down and he said, Big Mac sauce. And and I had to go through a process in my head where I said, okay, I've got two choices now. I can either tut tut and say, no, you're wrong. And basically um, cut him down in his tracks, even though he doesn't make that choice. That's a choice that's made for him. And that to him is what he's eating and he loves Mm. it. Or I can treat it as an opportunity to meet him halfway. Mm. And so I said, okay, what is your name, child? He said, Mike. And I thought, Thank you, universe. I've gone the right way. Let's make Big Mike's sauce. Okay. And so then we started talking about what we would put into Big Mike's sauce. What does Mike like to eat? Mm. Okay, well, it's probably got a mayonnaise base, so let's let's go that. Do you think it'd have some pickles? Yeah, probably have some pickles. And, you know, what about a bit of Spanish onion? Do you think it'd have that? And, you know, through that, we created something that rather than shaming this kid, mm. it made him feel like he was part of something. It made him feel proud. It made the others around him think that he was cooler. And so what it means for parents is that I think it's really easy to feel intimidated and to look at, you know, what other people are doing, especially on um, online and a lot of the parenting kind of blogs will give you really unrealistic expectations. And so you just go, you know what, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to do yeah. what I have the time for. So rather than doing that, just set yourself really achievable goals um, things like, for example, making it into a game. So what a lot of parents will do is instead of saying, if you eat these vegetables, I will um, give you a non-food-based reward, they'll say, I'll give you dessert. And so what that instantly does is that that makes dessert a good thing and vegetables or, or sure. you know, savoury a bad thing. And that's for life. You know, yeah. that's something that we were taught, which is why yeah. we're doing that. That's right. And so instead, make it into a game. Have a sticker chart where you say, if you try something new on that plate – you get a sticker or you get half an hour outside with your friends, whatever it is, you're just reinforcing positive behavior in a really simple, accessible way. Beyond that, I think it's really important as well that you learn to love vegetables. Often the reason why these kids aren't eating this boiled up broccoli or, or um, over overcooked Brussels sprout is because you hate it. And so that's, you're not putting any love into it. And so, um, Go online, have a look for recipes, watch shows like MasterChef that gives you, that give you inspiration because mm. it's actually really simple to shift your own understanding of, of yeah. those greens. And also when you put it down, it's all about attitude. This is the performance aspect because I remember putting a plate down in front of you, no matter if it was good or bad, I was always going to look really confident so that if it was remotely good, yeah, you, you were going to, you, you've got to carry the story. And so often what we'll do is we'll say, oh, here's, here's some cauliflower. You're not going to like it, but just try it. Straight away, that kid is gone. You've lost them. So instead you say, here's some cauliflower. I love this sauce with this cauliflower. And instantly they're more curious and more interested and open. Yeah. I love that. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Good. I I was waiting for you to give me some way of chopping up carrots and Serving them with a particular thing. because, And you've given me different answers, which is much more sensible and I really love it. I spent a lot of time trying to convince my daughter to eat. And I can cook vegetables in lots of different ways. You know, I did carrots 20 different ways. She still just didn't like carrots. And in the end, we just said, look, you know what? If you eat a little bit of it, that's okay. I'm not going to force a whole plate of beans or a whole plate, plate of broccoli. But what I'm convinced that I've done with my daughter is just prepare her 
kind of palette. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like just she's got lots of flavors going on there. She's tasted them all. She may not like them. And what I've really enjoyed as she's got older is seemingly she thinks under her own uh, auspices mm. now loves particular things. Yep. And I go, yeah, because I reckon I did that. I may be right. I may be wrong. But your taste changes as you get older. So, you know, you might hate that broccoli when you're a kid, but mm. by the time you're a teenager, you love it, especially if it's cooked in a nice way. Exactly. So, you know what? We could talk for hours and hours and hours, but if people want to find out what you're doing and what you're up to, your next project, where do they go? Aliceinframes.com. That's nice <laughs> and easy. Nice and easy. Find me online, Alice in Frames, all over Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, and get in touch if you've got ideas. I'm always open. Brilliant. Loved chatting to you, as you know. <laughs> Always a pleasure, guys. Time for my tips and tricks. Life is so busy, you don't get to spend as much time as you want with your kids. So why not use the kitchen as a positive place to be? Have a task. It's called mindfulness, isn't it? When you're making something and you're chatting, you're in that present moment. It's a really beautiful thing. I have enjoyed it since my daughter was a little girl. So here's my advice. Try and bring the kids into the kitchen for something positive, not just to wash up or dry up or get them to do a chore. Why not cook something that they love to eat? You know, it could be something for the lunchbox during uh, the week for school, or it could be just a cake or a cookie or maybe pasta. My daughter and I love making pasta together, something that we've done since she was really small. It's tactile. It's really instantly gratifying, rewarding, and lots and lots of different ways that you can finish it off. Different sauces. You can make little tortellini. You make fettuccine, tagliatelle. You can even sound Italian when you're talking about it. It's yummy. It's delicious. And it's a wonderful thing to do with your family. And of course, when they're little, you just have to accept the fact they're going to make a mess. And that's part of it. You should put a smile on your face. A Plate to Call Home is recorded in the Podcast One studios. The show is produced by Dave Swalensky, executive producer, Jamie Chow. Special thanks to Imogen Thomas for the research and audio production by Nick Slater.